Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to Season 7 of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Trevor Sterling. Trevor is a senior partner and head of major trauma at Moore Barlow. With more than 30 years of experience, Trevor specializes in personal injury and major trauma cases. He's been commended by Chambers UK as having a significant reputation and offering high levels of expertise. Trevor is also one of the partner sponsors for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. In 2020, on behalf of Moore Barlow, he co-founded the Major Trauma Group. Trevor is in the Rehabilitation Working Party and recently established a Signposting Pathways to Rehabilitation Project Committee. Trevor made history as the first black partner in a top 100 UK law firm. Trevor has been a finalist for the UK Diversity Legal Awards Lawyer of the Year 2019, Law Society Highly Commended Lawyer of the Year 2019, and the Law Society Highly Commended Legal Personality of the Year 2021. So, a very big warm welcome, Trevor. Thank you, Robbie. It's an absolute pleasure to be speaking with you. Ah, and likewise. And I mean, what an incredible bio there and everything you've achieved and all your projects I'm looking forward to diving into today. But before we do that, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality of the law if you've seen it? Uh, I have seen it. Um, and my age here, I guess, will dictate why my answer is going to be five. And that is because I probably would have given a eight to my favourite show, which was LA Law. And, ah, uh, yes. <laughs> but my, my generation is, is different from most of the listeners, I suspect. And I, I get people referring to suits rather than LA Law, so I've got to change my reference point. <laughs> well, a five is typically what I give it when I'm asked. So I think great minds think alike. And a lot of other guests have also mentioned LA Law. So you're not in lonely company. But with that, we should move swiftly on to talk all about you. So to begin with, Trevor, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about your background and career journey? Well, I've an unusual career journey because um, having become a lawyer, I have to say it's not what I ever expected to be. I, I left school when I was 16, 17 wasn't working, I was invited to see the careers advisor and he gave me three job options, a tennis racket stringer, a warehouseman or an outdoor clerk for a law firm. It was just by chance I took the third. And having started, I became passionate, if not obsessive about law. I studied evenings, weekends uh, and qualified as a legal executive, which I'm really proud of, and then a solicitor. And I, then I became my firm's youngest and first black partner at the age of 28 and um, I've gone on to have a, a really interesting career running some you know really interesting cases to the House of Lords and class actions and things like that so uh, it's been a journey and as you said in the opening 2021 I became the first black senior partner of a top 100 UK law firm so by the way one, one correction I'll make uh, uh, 30 years I think you said it's next year is my 40th anniversary in the law. There we go. There we go. And what an achievement that is. And everything that you have done is is incredible. And I guess with that, you kind of touched on it. It sort of fell into law by chance. You were given these three options. Um, what sort of inspired your career, particularly within personal injury? Um, well, it just so happens that the, the law firm I joined was a, a trade union law firm that, that, that did personal injury, a lot of industrial accidents. And so I sort of fell into it. Although there was... Um, 
an occasion where the then senior partner thought about me as a family lawyer. <laughs> so, but, but as it happens, I was assisting somebody who did personal injury, particularly a lot about industrial disease. And I just de- developed a passion for it, something which I think um, probably more suited me. Yeah, and I love that you talk about passion. It's something I tell a lot of people to do, you know, to have a sort of successful career, you've got to be passionate about what you do. But would you mind again telling our listeners what a typical day looks like for a senior partner and head of major trauma at Mobalo? Yes, yeah, so we created um, a specialist uh, um, service. It's called the Major Trauma Service. So a typical day for us is, is really unusual. And I don't refer to myself, oddly enough, as a personal injury lawyer. I refer to myself as a major trauma lawyer. Uh, and I have a major trauma team. And the reason for that is that we are privileged to have cases signposted to us specifically from major trauma uh, um, centres uh, in London. And therefore, when a, when a case comes through, uh, a tragic case, often as they are, uh, we will go along to see the patient uh, at the hospital and we'll give them whatever legal support and advice uh, they require. And my motivation behind that was that um, many years ago, a friend of mine had a cardiac arrest. So I went in and it was a very personal thing. I wasn't there as a lawyer, I was there as a friend. And, and I realised, you know, his, his life was turned upside down. His family's life was turned upside down. And, and therefore, I wanted to create a service which was there really to support the, the family as a whole through this period of crisis, not just in terms of personal injury, but all those other aspects. You know, who's going to speak with the employer? What, what advice do you require? in terms of benefits, all those things. So a really holistic service. And so we go in and we speak to the patient. We really are focused on uh, helping them to recover. So we look at rehabilitation uh, using the rehabilitation code. And then we go on that journey. There's a legal part, obviously, a legal claim if there is one to be made, uh, twinned with the rehabilitation and the support and improving the health aspects and, and quality of life. And so... It's really a handholding exercise for, for the for the family um, until we conclude matters. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate you know a lot of the the cases you'll be dealing with be highly complex, completely sensitive in nature, and I you know I guess a, a question on that is how do you deal with that yourself? You know, you're obviously seeing all of these different diff- different cases. You know, how do you kind of maintain that your overall well being whilst obviously ensuring that you're being the professional handling these particular cases? It's a great question. It's a question I'm often asked. You know, when some of the cases I've dealt with, I've dealt, I was involved with the uh, uh, Al-Qaeda attack on a BP site in, in Aminas where uh, many people, were, their lives were, were sadly destroyed. I was involved in Croydon Tram, uh, Jimmy Savile, Westminster terror attack. So um, what you see and you hear is, is, is dreadful. More recently, I've been involved and am involved in the Wimbledon school tragedy involving two young eight-year-olds who lost their lives. So it, it is tough. And the way I deal with it is I remind myself, a good friend of mine is a trauma surgeon. And so for him, you know, a, a bad day, I guess, is that the person may not make it through surgery. Um, I'm that one step removed. Uh, and so I see it as part of my role, really, to, to help make things better. Um, and, and if I am successful, then I will have helped improve the life or lives of the individuals. Um, and, and that is what really keeps me going. And I suppose 
the, the, the recovery part, because when you see someone initially, it, it is traumatic. But what really balances that is at the end, when you have helped them rebuild their lives, that smile on their face, that, that, that acknowledgement and appreciation, it just makes everything worth, worthwhile. So I will take all of that devastation and replace it with the reward that, that we, we get at the end um, to help rebuild people's lives. There's nothing better than uh, achieving something for someone that has made a difference. Really well said. And the word that came to my head was priceless. You know, you can't, you know, that that feeling of really, you know, trying to provide a solution and, you know, ultimately a really bad situation in somebody's life. And, and you can be part of, you know, hopefully trying to make that a, a better situation and seeing the reaction of the service you've delivered. Um, there's something about that intrinsic value that you must just get inside that, you know, makes you feel good about what you're doing. And, and sticking with all the good stuff, um, you know, you've referenced some of your high profile cases. I mean, we could be here for hours talking about all of them. But one of the ones I wanted to talk about was one of your most high profile cases, which was heard in the House of Lords in 2009, I believe. It was a landmark case in employers liability. So could you share this case with our listeners? Tell us more about what it was and how it came about. Yeah, I'm glad that's a case that you, you, you highlight us. A lot of people talk about the more well-known cases, you know, the Jimmy Savills and things like that. It's a case that was really personal to me, actually, because it's an employer's liability suicide case. It was an individual who was very severely uh, injured as a result of accident work. Um, he then went on to suffer from a severe depression. Um, and as a result of that, he took his own life. Um, and the reason why it was very personal to me was because in a way, I'd become part of his support network, and so he had decided to come and see me the day before uh, he jumped from a multi-storey uh, car park and, and killed himself. And he had a letter on his, on, his, on his person, which was from me, so that the authorities would know who to contact. Now, now he'd planned this suicide way before he saw me, but he, he obviously felt a sense of seeing me was going to somehow help him to, because he would feel comfortable that all of his affairs were in order. And the law, bizarrely, was that if you took your own life, even if it was from severe, suicide, um, severe depression caused by somebody's negligence, it was still your fault uh, and not the fault of the defendant. Uh, and so, so we lost in the, in the High Court, on the basis of the High Court concluded that once you decide to take your own life, it's an act of your own volition, and therefore you do not recover post-death uh, losses. And, and happily, when we went to the Court of Appeal and the House of Lords, uh, they determined that it doesn't break the chain. If you cause somebody severe depression and they give in to that compulsion to take their own lives, then it's still connected to the accident. And it was the first case of its type, employer's liability, uh, since 1957. So uh, it made history um, and is, is a case which is studied by students. And the judgment, the Court of Appeal judgment in particular, is a fantastic legal read. It really is. So it's a case I'm very, very proud of. Yeah, and absolutely, and, and, and rightly so. And, and and thank you for talking us through that that, that journey, because I, I can appreciate that would have been tough at the time. And I guess I want to talk more about the the challenges with some of the cases. So what are the challenges and ethical considerations involved with dealing with such high-profile cases? Um, well, the, one of the challenges is really the, the public interest. So when I was involved with the Pad, Paddington Rail crash, a lot of public interest, uh, Jimmy Savile, just a crazy amount of interest in that. 
And um, it becomes challenging because media starts to write its own narrative after a while. It goes off in its own direction. You know, it's not focused or particularly interested necessarily in the law. And so when you're trying to achieve justice and focus on the law, there's all of this noise around. And so you've got to really try and maintain a focus. And, and that's particularly difficult for those uh, that are involved. You know, if, if you've suffered a, a fatality, for example, the family are reading about it cost, constantly. And there are these little triggers where it comes back into the press. So it's really difficult to shelter the family, uh, families involved, but at the same time, maintain a focus on the law. We've got to be able to show uh, negligence um, as a foundation for what we do, uh, and then being able to support um, the, the, the family. So the difference between these kind of high-profile cases and other cases is the noise uh, around. But as a lawyer, just got to stay calm. Let's just stay calm. Stay focused, protect the family from all of that noise and just allow yourself to just remember it's one step at a time on the journey to justice and you take it uh, with patience and with confidence and that's the way I approach all of those cases. And that's really good advice. And, you know, it's it's one foot in front of the other, isn't it? Because ultimately the media is doing their job. They need to get eyeballs. You know, they're doing their job, but you're doing your job in, in protecting them as well. And I think if, if people just remember that when they're, they're dealing with these, then, you know, that's some really good um, routes to, to hopefully helping the families that absolutely need that support at that particular time. Um, you've talked a lot about the law and, of course, it's a legal show. And I'm sure, you know, the 40 years we stand corrected, you know, how has the legal landscape for trauma? cases evolved over the course of your career well another great question I mean, it, it's changed you know when i when i started out it was mainly t- trade unions were very on vogue and everybody wanted to sort of be a trade union look back then in the uh, in the 80s it just makes me feel really old when i talk about the 80s but you know so it was very different back then then we moved to you know cfas no window fee agreements advertising Personality lawyers could advertise. And then that sort of spurred this whole thing about if you're a personal injury lawyer, uh, you're an ambulance chaser. You know, you're just one step up from being an estate agent, you know, because back in the day, um, there was this whole thing about, you know, yuppies and estate agents. And then suddenly the, the worst enemy in society were personal injury lawyers. Uh, and and so, it, it, it's, and, and then the government have, have attacked personal injury lawyers because personal injury lawyers are seen as the same as clinical negligence lawyers and we're, you know, taxpayers are having to pay out and compensation. So everybody and everything seemed to, be, to go against us and nobody really seemed to truly understand what it is that we did, which is to ensure that people that are injured can access the funds for which are insured to help them to recover, so rehabilitation, and to be recompensed for losses. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's existed since the 1800s, early 1900s. So um, the main thing that has changed has been the societal attitude, I think, to the notion that it is perfectly okay to access funds from insurance insurers when injured. Uh, and actually, it was the main mechanism prior to the, ninth, the advent of the NHS that's why the, these cases go back so, so far. Um, so that's been the big challenge, which is why, as a major trauma lawyer, people don't run away from me. They say, oh, 
tell me a bit more about that. So I think that's a true reflection of what we do. The other thing that's changed is technology. And believe it or not, when I started, there were no mobile phones. <laughs> and, and there were typewriters. So, and, and I say that because there is so much communication and it comes, you know, I look in my inbox now, there's so many emails, whereas back then you just get your pile of post and it was perfectly acceptable to respond and they, they get the response three months later. Now the response has got to be within three hours. So, so technology uh, has, has changed and I think perception uh, has changed. But you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. I love what I do. And I love what I do because I guess I never expected to do it. And the fact that I do do it um, for me is an absolute privilege every day that I do it. Yeah. And again, so beautifully said, and, you know, I just love speaking to people that, you know, the, the passion just, just oozes through everything that you do. Time for a short break from the show, calling all lawyers who want to work smarter, not harder. Are you tired of following old processes just because, or do you feel like your current setup is letting you down? Then I recommend you try Clio the legal software that streamlines your workflow and keeps your entire firm organized. With Clio's cloud-based legal software, you can quickly and easily manage your cases, billing, documents, and calendar, all from one place. They've even got an easy-to-use mobile app, so you can stay on top of your cases wherever you go. Join the tens of thousands of legal professionals worldwide who trust Clio for all of their legal needs. It's the legal software that works for the modern law firm. Dive in, start using it right away with their seven-day free trial. Sign up now at clio.com forward slash legally speaking. That's C-L-I-O.com forward slash legally speaking. Now back to the show. I think it's important to highlight that you do so much more than the job. You go above and beyond. And I think that's obviously your, you know, wishing to improve and better the the profession. And, and where I'm going with this is, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're one of the partner sponsors for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. What initiatives, you know, and strategies have you implemented with that to promote diversity and inclusion at Marl Barlow and indeed within the wider legal community? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really important to me because I've always been kind of one of a kind in, in a way. I was always the first black. I'm often the only black person um, in in the room in my area of law. And, and many years ago, right at the start of my career, I met with Paul Boating, Lord Boating, as he now is, and he gave me a bit of advice. And he said, never forget your civic responsibility. So... Um, as a lawyer, I've you know gone back to my schools and become governors at the schools where uh, I was taught because you know I was impacted by a lot of the racism that I experienced, and so for me it was about trying to go back and, and, and correct that, but also inspire other people. And as a partner in a law firm, uh, it's been about making sure that we have policies and practices, and that diversity is a part of the rhythm of our business. And that means having a, a culture. So we've developed um, a, a cultural piece, mobile away, uh, where we ensure that we are able to speak openly about um, particular issues. 
we ensure that we have you know panels where we're recruiting that are not only diverse as those panels but that are looking out for diversity um, as well and and, we, and we've achieved that and we've got more than 50 percent of our partners are female uh, we've got the first ever black uh, senior partner top 100 uk law firm our chairman's a woman our uh, managing partner who is white but was the youngest managing partner to have been appointed a top 100 firm and you've got the first ever black senior partner so you know people feel they can be what they can see and so right at the top of our business we have diversity and we make sure through our diversity committee where we discuss all of these issues and it acts as an advisory committee into our executive and our partnership council that diversity is always at the forefront of our mind and by the way when I talk about diversity, I also include in that social mobility, because I think that the two can sometimes be confused. But if everyone deserves an opportunity to access this wonderful profession and to be part of it, no matter what their background, no matter what their characteristics. So, you know, I try and leave the way on that as much as I can. And you absolutely do. And there's um, a great quote that I want to share here that, you know, I believe was, was said, because you're a firm believer in don't just aspire to climb the ladder, be the ladder. So would you mind kind of explaining the meaning behind that quote? Well, so we, we often look at ourselves in terms of our careers and career progression. But actually, you need to lift as you climb. You know, particularly if you're one of a kind. So for me, achieving success uh, does mean that I've got to make sure uh, that I pull through um, as well. And I do that by through my own aspiration, not just climbing, but being, being the vehicle for others to come through and achieve. And if you do that, you'll have more diversity, more social mobility at the top level. And that then creates a rhythm in society which is fairer because those that are leaders in society will be from different diverse backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, not telling our production team where to soundbite, but I love that sort of the rhythm, you know, of society. Because it's so true, isn't it? Everything that you say there just absolutely has true meaning. And I love the fact that, you know, more than words, you're, you're taking so much action to be this change maker on top of obviously being, you know, highly qualified and specialized and a leader in the, the legal uh, work that you do. And you are passionate. It's very clear about helping others achieve their aspirations. Previously, you discussed your own experiences of social inequality, but how has this sort of own experience and journey you've been on fueled this mission of ensuring that positive change and ultimately achieving equality within the profession? You know, it, it, first of all, it's really important that I'm visible because I do believe that people believe they can be what they can see. And so just by me being visible and speaking out on these issues, talking about them, um, I think really encourages others. I think the other thing is to tell my story. You know, I'm a, I didn't go to university. I'm, I'm quite, you know, I'm, I'm very open about that. Um, and, you know, I left school with little in the way of qualification. I underachieved. Um, but I was able to find my feet. And it's about all of those negative experiences. I, I didn't underachieve because I wanted to underachieve. I underachieved because I was exposed to a lot of racism and a lack of confidence from many people around me because of the perception, uh, stereotypes that can, you know, 
that that that, that was in play, particularly back then. Um, so for me, it's all about your fuel. And I always say this: is if you imagine, if I imagine myself as a, as a vehicle, as a car, and I pull into a petrol station, I've got a choice of what fuel I can put in: the right fuel, petrol, for example, the wrong fuel, diesel. And if I choose to put the wrong fuel in, I'm going nowhere. So whatever those experiences are, for me, I convert them into the right fuel. They become a motivational fuel. That's what will drive my vehicle forwards. And then it's about where I choose to drive my vehicle. And so I know that whatever those external experiences are that I can't control, I can control what fuel I put in my vehicle and where I'm going. And that's a really important message to everyone. No matter what those negative uh, aspects are in life, in society, you know, you convert it into a positive fuel and drive forward. And you're driving forward to make a difference, not just for you, but for everybody like you. That's the whole piece around don't just aspire to climb the ladder, aspire to be the ladder. And a belief that ordinary people can achieve extraordinary things. And that's my mantra. doesn't matter what your background, uh, what your experiences are. Ordinary people can achieve extraordinary things if they have a positive mindset and are open to those experiences. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I love that you're sort of, you know, taking a negative, putting it into a positive, you know, controlling the controllables, you know, the narrative that you shared. I love that sort of fuel um analogy because it is so true and i think you know if you surround yourself with the right people as well you can get into that sort of positive mindset i think you know we talk a lot about the show the importance of of mentors you referenced briefly earlier but i'm sure um you know our listeners would be curious to learn a little bit more because you are also on the rehabilitation working party responsible for the rehabilitation code 2015 could you explain what the rehabilitation code 2015 is please well, so, so the initial, the, the, the idea actually came, was conceived by insurers, um, oddly enough, and um, their view was that if they were to help with rehabilitation and, and recovery, actually, not, not only is that better for the injured person, but it, it ultimately means they'd have to pay out less in terms of compensation. So a focus around rehabilitation was important. Um, the, in 2015, the code was uh, adapted, it was amended so that it wasn't a one-size-fits-all. So it, it, it understood that the more serious the injury, uh, there, there needed to be a different focus around immediate needs assessments, um, the recommendations that were made, what should be covered in those assessments, so 10 uh, markers, as opposed to the very sort of simplistic assessment that might be required with somebody who suffered uh, lesser injuries. So the 2015 code was an expanded code with a lot more detail about what it should contain and time frames to really make sure that it was more effective in, it, in, it, in its delivery. Um, and that's what we use in our major trauma service to underpin our, our service. It's a bit like um, a triage, if you like, for injuries and then recommendations are made, then funded, and that improves the outcomes of the individual. Well, thank you. Again, it's really good that we get a clear understanding of, you know, certain things connected to in and around the law. So appreciate you talking us through that. And more recently, Trevor, you established the signposting pathways to rehabilitation project committee. So what is the project committee all about? And what are its objectives? 
So the signposting uh, pathways, that, that was, and the use of the word signposting for me was really important because lawyers tend, tended to use the term referrals. <laughs> they were quite understood <laughs> that. So um, it's, it's really, it was, you know, I, I talked about my friend who suffered a cardiac arrest. And um, so I went into hospital as a friend. And then I realized there was this sort of carnage around him that even as a lawyer, I hadn't really appreciated because we were we tended to be instructed much later. And so I, I wanted to really understand what happened right at the time of you know admission and then look at how we could be part of the treatment pathway, accessing funds to ensure that the pathway was smoother. Uh, there wasn't the usual gap between health and social care, for example, and getting as much support as possible. So the Pathway Project was really me going out and speaking to as many clinicians as I as I possibly could to understand where there was where there were gaps within the NHS and social care, and then to try and work out how we could fill that as as lawyers using insurance funding, and then bringing them together, uh, and then happily once I. You know, run, run this project through uh, St George's Hospital. It's a brilliant hospital. It's my, my local hospital. Uh, they ran a pilot where they were signposting patients through to uh, our service, and we could then use insurance funds to help treat and improve the pathway of uh, their patients. So it really was an innovative concept, um, something I'm incredibly proud of, really, really proud of. And, and rightly so. And like you said, it's uh, an incredible um, initiative that, you know, you've absolutely taken and, and, and run with um, for good. And we like talking about, you know, initiatives for good on the show. Um, let's talk about your, your chair role, because as the chair of Mary um, Seacole Trust, what responsibilities do you have? Tell us a bit more about that. Um, so Mary Seacole, uh, Crimean uh, nurse, hero, Jamaican uh, a, um, a businesswoman as well, uh, an author wrote a book, but most people think of Crimea, they th- when they think of Crimea, they think of Florence Nightingale. Well, she was there alongside. The difference is that she came from Jamaica to Britain to offer her services, felt rejected, uh, went to the Crimea using her own funds, and she helped nurse and support uh, the soldiers out there. So she was probably the most famous black woman in the British Empire during that Victorian period. But when she died, she was forgotten. So there was a um, a, a 12-year campaign to get a statue of her, and I was part of that campaign, which was unveiled and erected at St. Thomas's Hospital in in 2016. Another first, by the way, I do like first. That was the first bronze statue of a named black female anywhere in the UK. And Lord Soli at the time was the chair, and I became chair at the point of that unveiling. And the idea really was to use Mary Seacole as uh, as a platform for social equality. So we not only tell her story, uh, but we promote social equality. So I, I go into to schools, I talk to thousands of school children each year, um, and we run um, diversity and leadership programs as well. So we're doing everything we can to ensure that there's diversity and leadership and to empower and to inspire our young people. I'm supported on the board by just some incredible people, you know, the, the likes of Martin Griffiths, a tremendous trauma surgeon, 
at Royal London and Dawn Hill, who was a former chair of the Black Cultural Archives. You know, some really, really inspirational people that are being the ladder and helping other people through in the name of Mary Seacott. Yeah, again, it's just tremendous work. And yeah, I like I like all the firsts, you know, it's definitely uh, something that runs through um, everything that you do. And talking of firsts, and all things new, sort of upcoming, um, you try podcasts. So uh, tell us more uh, about the show and what people can expect. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited by this, because, you know, it's my 40th anniversary, and I wanted to do something which uh, was going to mark that, but was also going to epitomise me being the ladder and showcasing other people being the ladder. Because one thing I've realised is that people that do break through, um, they usually really want to help other people to break through. And so I wanted to be able to put a voice to that. So uh, the podcast, You Triumph, by the way, is the Triumph uh, is the name of my father's first car that I remember, a Triumph 1500, and, and also the first album that my sister bought. Jackson, so if, you, if, you, if you're old enough to remember. And I wanted to, so that was a nod to them. It's a breakthrough series of podcasts where I get to speak to individuals that have broken through, that have come typically from backgrounds where you wouldn't have expected them to have broken through. And they tell their journey using the ladder. So top rung, what does success look like? Bottom rung, how did it all start? And then the middle of the ladder, are those obstacles and challenges and how they overcame them? And then we connect it and we've got that ladder. And th their stories will help give others inspiration and motivation. And one of the great podcasts, <laughs> I say great podcasts, as in the individual I interviewed, was Sean Wallace, uh, who's the chaser, the dark destroyer and the chase. And his journey, you know, people think, you know, it, it, it's if he started successfully, he didn't. Uh, he, like me, left school. I think he had one O-level. I had two GCSEs, as they are now in today's money. He you know, struggled through university. I didn't go to university. And he struggled a bit, really, as a barrister, but he just kept on going. And then he won Mastermind, the first black person to win Mastermind, and he's gone on to, be, to, to appear on the top TV quiz show. An absolute inspiration. And so him telling his journey, climbing the ladder, I think will give... A lot of people, a lot of hope. And that's the idea of the Breakthrough Series. Yeah, and I think it's a, a tremendously informative and inspiring series. And I would encourage people to to absolutely check that out. Um, and I think it reminds what you were just saying there of your journey, of Sean's journey. You will never fail if you don't give up. And I think that's the important thing, right? You know, yeah. you will never fail if you never give up. And I think that's the mentality that, you know, has been been shown in a lot of our guests and yourself today and all the great things that you have gone on to achieve. And I guess that lands nicely onto our, our sort of final question for today, which is what advice do you have for those who are starting out in the legal profession and perhaps have an interest in personal injury slash major trauma? So what you're saying, you're absolutely right. You triumph if you believe, and that's the behind the, the name of the podcast. I go back to my mantras. Ordinary people can believe, can achieve extraordinary things. If you have positive mindset and you're open to those experiences, so open your mind to the belief that you can break through and achieve. And um, believe you me, if someone had said to me when I started out, you're going to become a senior partner, I would have said, there's no way, I'm probably not even going to last one or two years. And here I am 40 years later, 
I'm lucky. I'm blessed to be at Morbala. I'm blessed to have a firm that allows me to to give a voice to to the things that I believe in and we believe in as a firm, uh, including uh, supporting your tribe. So what I would say to anybody starting out is one, believe, two, connect, because people that break through will want to help. So connect and three, be prepared to work hard. And those three things will hopefully allow you to achieve what I've achieved. But my most important message is don't just aspire to climb the ladder, aspire to be the ladder. Yeah, exceptionally well said. And, you know, I just really want to talk about that believe point. I think when I started my first business with, with Casey Partners, I, I always wrote down BTA, believe to achieve, and just had that imprinted in my head because it's not easy when you start out. And I think you make a great point about connecting and an even better point about hard work because yes, with the advent of AI and everything else and technology, and you talked about this, things are becoming faster, quicker, better. I still don't believe there's a shortcut to success yet. <laughs> there might be in the future. So, you know, you do need to put in the hard work. Um, but if you do that and you surround yourself with the right people, absolutely great things will happen. Um, Trevor, this has been a fascinating and insightful conversation as I knew it would be. And that's why I was super excited to have you on the show. If our listeners want to learn more about your career journey, more Barlow or the Major Trauma Group or indeed the Mary Sequel Trust, where can they find out more? Feel free to shout out any social media handles, website links. We'll also share them with this episode for you too. Um, so I'm very visible on LinkedIn. So please do find me on LinkedIn. Social media, Twitter, at Trevor Stirl, S-T-E-R-L, or come to uh, uk, my website. But certainly please do uh, look out for the U Triumph uh, Breakthrough Series podcast. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much once again, Trevor. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. We'd like to wish you lots of continued success with your career and indeed future pursuits. But for now, from all of us on the Legally Speaking Podcast, over and out. All right. Easy peasy, right, Trevor? Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.